0: CHAPTER FOUR OF THRILLING NARRATIVES OF MUTINY, MURDER, AND PIRACY This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Thaler THRILLING NARRATIVES OF MUTINY, MURDER, AND PIRACY By Anonymous An account of the whale fishery, with anecdotes of the dangers attending it historians in general have given to the Biscayans the credit of having first practiced the fishery for the whale. The English, and afterwards the Dutch, are supposed to have followed in their pursuit. It was prosecuted by the Norwegians so early as the ninth century, and by the Icelanders about the 11th. It was not till the 17th century, however, that the whale fishery was engaged in by the maritime nations of Europe as an important branch of commerce. The crew of a whale-ship, Usually consists of forty to fifty men, comprising several classes of officers, such as harpooners, boat steerers, line managers, etc., together with foremastmen, landmen, and apprentices. As a stimulus to the crew in the fishery, every individual, from the master down to the boys, besides his monthly pay, receives either a gratuity for every size fish caught during the voyage, or a certain sum for every ton of oil which the cargo produces masters and harpooners receive a small sum before sailing in place of monthly wages and if they procure no cargo whatever they receive nothing more for their voyage but in the event of a successful fishing their advantages are considerable the crow's nest is an apparatus placed on the main topmast or topgallant mast head as a watchtower for the officer on the lookout it is closely defended from the wind and cold and is furnished with a speaking-trumpet, a telescope, and rifle. The most favourable opportunity for prosecuting the fishery in the Greenland Seas commonly occurs with north, northwest, or west winds. At such times, the sea is smooth, and the atmosphere, though cloudy and dark, is generally free from fog and snow. The fishers prefer a cloudy to a clear sky, because in very bright weather the sea becomes illuminated, and the shadows of the whale-boats are so deeply impressed in the water by the beams of the sun that the whales are apt to take alarm. Fogs are only so far unfavourable as being liable to endanger the boats by shutting out the sight of the ship. A well-constructed whale-boat floats lightly and safely on the water, is capable of being rowed with great speed and readily turned round. It is of such capacity that it carries six or seven men, seven or eight hundred weight of whale-lines, and various other materials and yet retains the necessary properties of safety and speed whale boats being very liable to receive damage both from whales and ice are always carver built a structure which is easily repaired the instruments of general use in the capture of the whale are the harpoon and lance there is moreover a kind of harpoon which is shot from a gun but being difficult to adjust it is seldom used each boat is likewise furnished with a jack, or flag fastened to a pole, intended to be displayed as a signal whenever a whale is harpooned. The crew of a whale ship are separated in divisions, equal in number to the number of boats. Each division, consisting of a harpooner, a boat steerer, and a line manager, together with three or four rowers, constitutes a boat's crew. On fishing stations, when the weather is such as to render the fishery practicable the boats are always ready for instant service the crow's nest is generally occupied by one of the officers who keeps an anxious watch for the appearance of the whale the moment that a fish is seen he gives notice to the watch upon deck part of whom leap into a boat are lowered down and push off toward the place if the fish be large a second boat is dispatched to the support of the other and when the whole of the boats are sent out, the ship is said to have a loose fall. There are several rules observed in approaching a whale to prevent the animal from taking the alarm. As the whale is dull of hearing, but quick of sight, the boat-steerer always endeavours to get behind it, and in accomplishing this he is sometimes justified in taking a circuitous route. In calm weather, where guns are not used, the greatest caution is necessary before a whale can be reached. Smooth, careful rowing is always requisite, and sometimes sculling is practised. It is a primary consideration with the harpooner always to place his boat as near as possible to the spot in which he expects the fish to rise, and he conceives himself successful in the attempt when the fish comes up with a start, that is, within the distance of about 200 yards. Whenever a whale lies on the surface of the water, unconscious of the approach of its enemies, the hardy fisher rows directly upon it, and an instant before the boat touches it, buries his harpoon in the back. The wounded whale, in the surprise and agony of the moment, makes a convulsive effort to escape. Then is the moment of danger. The boat is subjected to the most violent blows from its head or its fins, but particularly from its ponderous tail which sometimes sweeps the air with such tremendous fury that the boat and men are exposed to one common destruction. The head of the whale is avoided, because it cannot be penetrated with the harpoon, but any part of the body, between the head and the tail, will admit of the full length of the instrument, without danger of obstruction. The moment that the wounded whale disappears, a flag is displayed, on sight of which those on watch in the ship give the alarm by stamping on the deck, accompanied by shouts of A fall! At the sound of this, the sleeping crew are roused, jump from their beds, rush upon deck, and crowd into the boats. The alarm of A fall has a singular effect on the feelings of a sleeping person unaccustomed to hearing it. It has often been mistaken as a cry of distress. A landsman, Seeing the crew, on an occasion of a fall, leap into the boats in their shirts, imagined that the boat was sinking. He therefore tried to get into a boat himself, but every one of them being fully manned, he was refused. After several fruitless endeavors to gain a place among his comrades, he cried out in evident distress, What shall I do? Will none of you take me in? The First Effort of a Fast Fish or whale that has been struck, is to escape from the boat by sinking under water. After this, it pursues its course downward, or reappears at a little distance, and swims with great celerity near the surface of the water. It sometimes returns instantly to the surface, and gives evidence of its agony by the most convulsive throes. The downward course of a whale is, however, the most common. A whale struck near the edge of any large sheet of ice and passing underneath it will sometimes run the whole of the lines out of one boat. The approaching distress of a boat, for want of line, is indicated by the elevation of an oar, to which is added a second, a third, or even a fourth, in proportion to the nature of the exigence. The utmost care and attention are requisite on the part of every person in the boat when the lines are running out, fatal consequences having been sometimes produced by the most trifling neglect when the line happens to run foul and cannot be cleared on the instant it sometimes draws the boat under water on which if no auxiliary boat or convenient piece of ice be at hand the crew are plunged into the sea and are obliged to trust to their oars or their skill in swimming for supporting themselves on the surface Captain Scoresby relates an accident of this kind, which happened on his first voyage to the whale fishery. A thousand fathoms of line were already out, and the fast boat was forcibly pressed against the side of a piece of ice. The harpooner, in his anxiety to retard the flight of the whale, applied too many turns of the line round the bollard, which, getting entangled, drew the boat beneath the ice. Another boat, providentially, was at hand into which the crew had just time to escape. The whale, with near two miles' length of line, was in consequence of the accident lost, but the boat was recovered. The average stay under water of a wounded whale is about thirty minutes. When it reappears, the assisting boats make for the place with their utmost speed, and as they reach it, each harpooner plunges his harpoon into its back to the amount of three four or more according to the size of the whale it is then actively plied with lances which are thrust into its body aiming at its vitals the sea to a great extent around is dyed with its blood and the noise made by its tail in its dying struggle may be heard several miles in dying it turns on its back or on its side which circumstance is announced by the capturers with the striking of their flags accompanied by three lively huzzas. Whales are sometimes captured with a single harpoon in the space of fifteen minutes. Sometimes they resist forty or fifty hours, and at times they will break three or four lines at once, or tear themselves clear off the harpoons by the violence of their struggles. Generally, the capture of a whale depends on the activity of the harpooner, the state of the wind and weather, or the peculiar conduct of the animal itself. Under the most favourable circumstances, the length of time does not exceed an hour. The general average may be stated at two hours. Instances have occurred where whales have been taken without being struck at all, simply by entangling themselves in the lines that had been used to destroy others, and struggling till they were drowned or died of exhaustion. The fishery for whales, when conducted at the margin of those wonderful sheets of ice, called fields, is, when the weather is fine and the refuge for ships secure, the most agreeable and sometimes the most productive of all other ways. When the fish can be observed blowing in any of the holes of a field, the men travel over the ice and attack it with lances to turn it back. As connected with this subject, Captain Scoresby relates the following circumstance, which occurred under his own observation. On the 8th of July... 1813, the ship Esk lay by the side of a large sheet of ice, in which there were several thin parts and some holes. Here, a whale being heard blowing, a harpoon with a line fastened to it was conveyed across the ice, from a boat on guard, and the harpooner succeeded in striking the whale at a distance of 350 yards from the verge. It dragged out ten lines, 2,400 yards, and was supposed to be seen blowing in a different holes in the ice. After some time, it made its appearance on the exterior, and was again struck at the moment it was about to go under the second time. About a hundred yards from the edge, it broke the ice where it was a foot thick with its head, and respired through the opening. It then pushed forward, breaking the ice as it advanced, in spite of the lances constantly directed against it at last it reached a kind of basin in the field, where it floated on the surface without any encumbrance from ice. Its back being fairly exposed, the harpoon struck from the boat on the outside was observed to be so slightly entangled that it was ready to drop out. Some of the officers lamented this circumstance, and wished that the harpoon might be better fast, at the same time observing that if it should slip out, either the fish would be lost or they should be under the necessity of flensing it where it lay, and of dragging the blubber over the ice to the ship, a kind and degree of labour every one was anxious to avoid. No sooner was the wish expressed, and its importance explained, than a young and daring sailor stepped forward, and offered to strike the harpoon deeper. Not at all intimidated by the surprise manifested on every countenance at such a bold proposal, he leaped on the back of the living whale, and cut the harpoon out with his pocket-knife. Stimulated by his gallant example, one of his companions proceeded to his assistance. While one of them hauled upon the line and held it in his hands, the other set his shoulder against the end of the harpoon, and though it was without a stock, contrived to strike it again into the fish more effectually than at first. The whale was in motion before they had finished. After they got off its back, it advanced a considerable distance, breaking the ice all the way, and survived this novel treatment ten or fifteen minutes. This daring deed was of essential service. The whale fortunately sunk spontaneously after it expired, on which it was hauled out under the ice by a line, and secured without farther trouble. It proved a mighty whale, a very considerable prize. When engaged in the pursuit of a large whale, It is necessary precaution for two boats at all times to proceed in company, that the one may be able to assist the other on any emergency. With this principle in view, two boats from the Esk were sent out in chase of some large whales on the 13th of June, 1814. No ice was within sight. The boats had proceeded some time together, when they separated in pursuit of two whales, not far distant from each other when by a singular coincidence the harpooners each struck his fish at the same moment they were a mile from the ship urgent signals for assistance were displayed by each boat and in a few minutes one of the harpooners was obliged to slip the end of his line fortunately the other fish did not descend so deep and the lines in the boat proved adequate for the occasion one of the fish being then supposed to be lost five of the boats out of seven attended on the fish which yet remained entangled, and speedily killed it. A short time afterwards, the other fish supposed to be lost was descried at a little distance from the place where it was struck. Three boats proceeded against it. It was immediately struck, and in twenty minutes also killed. Thus were fortunately captured two whales, both of which had been despaired of. They produced near forty tons of oil, value at that time... 1400 pounds. The lines attached to the last fish were recovered with it. Before a whale can be flensed, as the operation of taking off the fat and whalebone is called, some preliminary measures are requisite. These consist in securing the whale to the boat, cutting away the attached whale lines, lashing the fins together, and towing it to the ship. Some curious circumstances connected with these operations may be mentioned here. In the year 1816, a fish was to all appearance killed by the crew of the Esk. The fins were partly lashed, and the tail on the point of being secured, and all the lines excepting one were cut away, the fish meanwhile lying as if dead. To the alarm, however, of the sailors, it revived, began to move, and pressed forward in a convulsive agitation, Soon after it sunk in the water to some depth and then died. One line fortunately remained attached to it, by which it was drawn to the surface and secured. A suspension of labour is generally allowed after the whale has been secured aside of the ship and before the commencement of the operation of flensing. An unlucky circumstance once occurred in an interval of this kind. At that period of the fishery, forty or fifty years ago, When a single stout whale together with the bounty was found sufficient to remunerate the owners of the ship for the expenses of the voyage, great joy was exhibited on the capture of a whale by the fishers. They were not only cheered by a dram of spirits, but sometimes provided with some favourite mess, on which to regale themselves, before they commenced the arduous task of flensing. At such a period, the crew of an English vessel had captured their first whale. It was taken to the ship, placed on the lee side, and though the wind blew a strong breeze, it was fastened only by a small rope attached to the fin. In this state of supposed security, all hands retired to regale themselves, the captain himself not excepted. The ship being at a distance from any ice, and the fish believed to be fast, they made no great haste in their enjoyment. At length, the spectioneer, or chief harpooner, Having spent sufficient time in indulgence and equipment, with an air of importance and self-confidence, proceeded on deck, and naturally turned to look on the whale. To his astonishment, it was not to be seen. In some alarm, he looked astern, ahead, on the other side, but his search was useless. The ship, drifting fast, had pressed forcibly upon the whale, the rope broke, the fish sunk, and was lost. The mortification of this event may be conceived, but the termination of their vexation will not easily be imagined when it is known that no other opportunity of procuring a whale occur- occurred during the voyage. The ship returned home clean. Lensing in a swell is a most difficult and dangerous undertaking, and when the swell is at all considerable, it is commonly impracticable. No ropes or blocks are capable of bearing the jerk of the sea. The harpooners are annoyed by the surge and repeatedly drenched in water, and are likewise subject to be wounded by the breaking of ropes or hooks of tackles, and even by strokes from each other's knives. Hence, accidents in this kind of flensing are not uncommon. The harpooners not unfrequently fall into the whale's mouth when it is exposed by the removal of a surface of blubber, where they might easily be drowned but for the prompt assistance which is always at hand. One of the laws of the fishery universally adhered to is that whenever a whale is loose, whatever may be the case or circumstances, it becomes a free prize to the first person who gets hold of it. Thus, when a whale is killed and the flensing is prevented by a storm, it is usually taken in tow. If the rope by which it is connected with the ship should happen to break, and the people of another ship should seize upon it while disengaged, it becomes their prize. The following circumstance which occurred a good many years ago has a tendency to illustrate the existing greenland laws during a storm of wind and snow several ships were beating to windward under easy sail along the edge of a pack when the storm abated and the weather cleared the ships steered towards the ice two of the fleet approached it about a mile asunder abreast of each other when the crews of each ship accidentally got sight of a dead fish at a little distance within some loose ice. Each ship now made sail to endeavour to reach the fish before the other, which fish being loose, it would be a prize to the first who could get possession of it. Neither ship could outsail the other, but each contrived to press forward towards the prize. The little advantage one of them had in distance, the other compensated with velocity. On each bow of the two ships was stationed a principal officer, armed with a harpoon in readiness to discharge. But it so happened that the ships came in contact with each other, when within a few yards of the fish, and in consequence of the shock with which their bows met, they rebounded to a considerable distance. The officers at the same moment discharged their harpoons, but all of them fell short of the fish. A hardy fellow, who was second mate of the leeward ship, immediately leaped overboard and with great dexterity swam to the whale seized it by the fin and proclaimed it his prize it was however so swollen that he was unable to climb upon it but was obliged to remain shivering in the water until assistance should be sent his captain elated with his good luck forgot or at least neglected his brave second mate and before he thought of sending a boat to release him from his disagreeable situation "'prepared to moor his ship to an adjoining piece of ice. "'Meanwhile the other ship tacked, "'and the master himself stepped into a boat, "'pushed off, and rowed deliberately towards the dead fish. "'Observing the trembling seaman still in the water "'holding by the fin, he addressed him with, "'Well, my lad, you have got a fine fish here,' "'to which, after a natural reply in the affirmative, "'he added, "'But don't you find it very cold?' Yes, replied the shivering sailor, I'm almost starved. I wish you would allow me to come into your boat until ours arrives. This favour needed no second solicitation. The boat approached the man, and he was assisted into it. The fish being again loose and out of possession, the captain instantly struck his harpoon into it, hoisted his flag, and claimed his prize. Mortified and displeased as the other master felt at this trick, for so it certainly was, he had nevertheless no redress, but was obliged to permit the fish to be taken on board of his competitor's ship, and to content himself with abusing the second mate for want of discretion, and condemning himself for not having more compassion on the poor fellow's feeling, which would have prevented the disagreeable misadventure. Those employed in the occupation of killing whales are, when actually engaged, exposed to, di- to danger from three sources, that is, from the ice from the climate, and from the whales themselves. The ice is a source of danger to the fishers from overhanging masses falling upon them, from the approximation of large sheets of ice to each other, which are apt to crush or upset the boats, from their boats being stove or sunk by large masses of ice agitated by a swell, and from the boats being enclosed and beset in a pack of ice, and their crews thus prevented from joining their ships. On the commencement of a heavy gale of wind, May eleventh, eighteen thirteen, fourteen men put off in a boat from the volunteer of Whitby, with the view of setting an anchor in a large piece of ice, to which it was their intention of mooring the ship. The ship approached on a signal being made, the sails were clued up, and a rope fixed to the anchor, but the ice shivering with the violence of the strain when the ship fell astern, the anchor flew out, and the ship went adrift the sails being again set, the ship was reached to the eastward, wind up north, the distance of about two miles. But in attempting to wear and return, the ship, instead of performing the evolution, scudded a considerable distance to the leeward, and was then reaching out to sea, leaving thus fourteen of her crew to a fate most dreadful, the fulfilment of which seemed almost inevitable. The temperature of the air was fifteen or sixteen of Fahrenheit, when these poor wretches were left upon a detached piece of ice, of no considerable magnitude, without food, without shelter from the inclement storm, deprived of every means of refuge except in a single boat, which, on account of the number of men and the violence of the storm, was incapable of conveying them to their ship. Death stared them in the face, whichever way they turned, and a division in opinion ensued. Some were wishful to remain on the ice, but the ice could afford them no shelter to the piercing wind, and would probably be broken to pieces by the increasing swell. Others were anxious to attempt to join their ship while she was yet in sight, but the force of the wind, the violence of the sea, the smallness of the boat in comparison to the number of men to be conveyed— were objections which would have appeared insurmountable to any person but men in a state of despair judging that by remaining on the ice death was but retarded for a few hours as the extreme cold must eventually benumb their faculties and invite a sleep which would overcome the remains of animation they determined on making the attempt of rowing to their ship poor souls what must have been their sensations at that moment when the spark of hope yet remaining was so feeble that a premature death even to themselves seemed inevitable. They made the daring experiment, when a few minutes' trial convinced them that the attempt was utterly impracticable. They then, with longing eyes, turned their efforts towards recovering the ice they had left, but their utmost exertions were unavailing. Every one now viewed his situation as desperate, and anticipated as certain the fatal event which was to put a period to his life. How great must have been their delight, and how overpowering their sensations, when at this most critical juncture a ship appeared in sight. Uh. She was advancing directly toward them. Their voices were extended and their flag displayed. But although it was impossible they should be heard, it was not impossible they should be seen. Their flag was described by the people on board the ship. Their mutual courses were so directed as to form the speediest union, and in a few minutes they found themselves on the deck of the Lively of Whitby, under circumstances of safety. They received from their townsmen the warmest congratulations, and while each individual was forward in contributing his assistance toward the restoration of their benumbed bodies, each appeared sensible that their narrow escape from death was highly providential. The forbearance of God is wonderful. Perhaps these very men, a few hours before, were impiously invoking their own destruction, or venting imprecations upon their fellow-beings. True it is that the goodness of the Almighty extendeth over all his works, and that while mercy is his darling attribute, judgment is his strange work. The most extensive source of danger to the whale-fisher, when actively engaged in his occupation, arises from the object of his pursuit. Excepting when it has young under its protection, the whale generally exhibits remarkable timidity of character. A bird perching on its back alarms it, hence the greater part of the accidents which happen in the course of its capture must be attributed to adventitious circumstances on the part of the whale, or to mismanagement or foolhardiness on the part of the fishers. A harpooner belonging to the Henrietta of Whitby when engaged in lancing a whale into which he had previously struck a harpoon, incautiously cast a little line under his feet that he had just hauled into the boat, after it had been drawn out by the fish. A painful stroke of his lance induced the whale to dart suddenly downward. His line began to run out from beneath his feet, and in an instant caught him by a a turn round his body. He had but just time to cry out, "'Clear away the line! Oh, dear!' when he was cut almost asunder dragged overboard and never seen afterwards the line was cut at that moment but without avail the fish descended a considerable depth and died from whence it was drawn to the surface by the lines connected with it and secured well the ship resolution navigated an open lake of water in the eighty-first degree of north latitude during a keen frost and strong north wind On the 2nd of June 1806, a whale appeared, and a boat put off in pursuit. On its second visit to the surface of the sea, it was harpooned. A convulsive heave of the tail, which succeeded the wound, struck the boat at the stern, and by its reaction projected the boat steerer overboard. As the line in a moment dragged the boat beyond his reach, the crew threw some of their oars toward him for his support, one of which he fortunately seized. The ship and boats, being at a considerable distance, and the fast boat being rapidly drawn away from him, the harpooner cut the line with the view of rescuing him from his dangerous situation. But no sooner was this act performed than to their extreme mortification they discovered that in consequence of some oars being thrown toward their floating comrade, and others being broken or unshipped by the blow from the fish, one oar only remained— with which, owing to the force of the wind, they tried in vain to approach him. A considerable period elapsed before any boat from the ship could afford him assistance, though the men strained every nerve for the purpose. At length, when they reached him, he was found with his arms stretched over an oar, almost deprived of sensation. On his arrival at the ship he was in a deplorable condition. His clothes were frozen like mail, and his hair constituted a helmet of ice. He was immediately conveyed into the cabin, his clothes taken off, his limbs and body dried and well rubbed, and a cordial administered, which he drank. A dry shirt and stockings were then put upon him, and he was laid in the captain's bed. After a few hours' sleep he awoke, and appeared considerably restored, but complained of a painful sensation of cold. He was therefore removed to his own berth, and one of his messmates ordered to lie on each side of him, whereby the diminished circulation of the blood was accelerated, and the animal heat restored. The shock on his constitution, however, was greater than was anticipated. He recovered in the course of a few days, so as to be able to engage in his ordinary pursuits, but many months elapsed before his countenance exhibited its usual appearance of health. The Aimwell of Whitby, while cruising the Greenland Seas in the year 1810, had boats in chase of whales on the 26th of May. One of them was harpooned, but instead of sinking immediately on receiving the wound, as is the most usual manner of the whale, this individual only dived for a moment, and rose again beneath the boat, struck it in the most vicious manner with its fins and tail, stove it, upset it, and then disappeared. The crew, seven in number, got on the bottom of the boat, but the unequal action of the lines, which for some time remained entangled with the boat, rolled it occasionally over, and thus plunged the crew repeatedly into the water. Four of them, after each immersion, recovered themselves and clung to the boat, but the other three, one of whom was the only person acquainted with the art of swimming, were drowned before assistance could arrive. The four men on the boat being rescued and conveyed to the ship, the attack on the whale was continued, and two more harpoons struck. But the whale, irritated, instead of being enervated by its wounds, recommenced its furious conduct. The sea was in a foam, its tail and fins wore an awful play, and in a short time harpoon after harpoon drew out, the fish was loosened from its entanglements, and escaped in the fishery of 1812 the henrietta of whitby suffered a similar loss a fish which was struck very near the ship by a blow of its tail stove a small hole in the boat's bow every individual shrinking from the side on which the blow was impressed aided the influence of the stroke and upset the boat they all clung to it while it was bottom up but the line having got entangled among the thwarts suddenly drew the boat under water and with it part of the crew. Excessive anxiety among the people in the ship occasioned delay in sending assistance, so that when the first boat arrived at the spot, two survivors only out of six men were found. During a fresh gale of wind in the season of 1809, one of the Resolution's harpooners struck a sucking whale. Its mother being near, all the other boats were disposed around with the hope of entangling it. The old whale pursued a circular route round its cub, and was followed by the boats, but its velocity was so considerable that they were unable to keep pace with it. Being in the capacity of harpooner on this occasion myself, I proceeded to the chase, after having carefully marked the proceedings of the fish. I selected a situation in which I conceived the whale would make its appearance, and was in the act of directing my crew to cease rowing, when a terrible blow was struck on the boat. The whale I never saw, but the effect of the blow was too important to be overlooked. About fifteen square feet of the bottom of the boat were driven in. It filled, sunk, and upset in a moment. Assistance was providentially at hand, so that we were all taken up without injury, after being but a few minutes in the water. The whale escaped. The boat's lines fell out and were lost, but the boat was recovered. A remarkable instance of the power which the whale possesses in its tail was exhibited within my own observation in the year eighteen o seven. On the twenty ninth of May, a whale was harpooned by an officer belonging to the Resolution. It descended a considerable depth, and on its reappearance, evinced an uncommon degree of irritation. It made such a display of its fins and tail that few of the crew were hardy enough to approach it. The captain. Captain Scoresby's father, observing their timidity, called a boat and himself struck a second harpoon. Another boat immediately followed, and unfortunately advanced too far. The tail was again reared into the air in a terrific attitude. The impending blow was evident. The harpooner, who was directly underneath, leaped overboard, and the next moment the threatened stroke was impressed on the centre of the boat, which it buried in the water. Happily, No one was injured. The harpooner who leaped overboard escaped certain death by the act, the tail having struck the very spot on which he stood. The effects of the blow were astonishing. The keel was broken, the gunwales and every plank excepting two were cut through, and it was evident that the boat would have been completely divided had not the tail struck directly upon a coil of lines. The boat was rendered useless." Instances of disasters of this kind, occasioned by blows from the whale, could be adduced in great numbers. Cases of boats being destroyed by a single stroke of the tail are not unknown. Instances of boats having been stove or upset, and their crews wholly or in part drowned, are not infrequent. And several cases of whales have been made a regular attack upon every boat which came near them, dashed some in pieces, and killed or drowned some of the people in them, have occurred within a few years even under my own observation the dutch ship Gork molen commanded by cornelius gerard ovecas with a cargo of seven fish was anchored in greenland in the year 1660. the captain perceiving a whale ahead of his ship beckoned his attendants and threw himself into a boat he was the first to approach the whale, and was fortunate enough to harpoon it before the arrival of the second boat, which was on the advance. Jacques Vinquès who had the direction of it, joined his captain immediately afterwards, and prepared to make a second attack on the fish, when it should remount again to the surface. At the moment of its ascension, the boat of Vinquès happening unfortunately to be perpendicularly above it, "'was so suddenly and forcibly lifted up by a stroke of the head of the whale "'that it was dashed to pieces before the harpooner could discharge his weapon. "'Vincas flew along with the pieces of the boat, and fell upon the back of the animal. "'This intrepid seaman, who still retained his weapon in his grasp, "'harpooned the whale on which he stood, "'and by means of the harpoon and the line, which he never abandoned, "'he steadied himself firmly upon the fish.' notwithstanding his hazardous situation, and regardless of a considerable wound that he received in his leg in his fall, along with the fragments of the boat. All the efforts of the other boats to approach the whale and deliver the harpooner were futile. The captain, not seeing any other method of saving his unfortunate companion, who was in some way entangled with the line, called to him to cut it with his knife and betake himself to swimming. Vincas, Embarrassed and disconcerted as he was, tried in vain to follow this counsel. His knife was in the pocket of his drawers, and being unable to support himself with one hand, he could not get it out. The whale, meanwhile, continued advancing along the surface of the water with great rapidity, but fortunately never attempted to dive. While his comrades despaired of his life, the harpoon by which he held at length disengaged itself from the body of the whale. Vincus, being thus liberated, did not fail to take advantage of this circumstance. He cast himself into the sea, and by swimming endeavored to regain the boats which continued the pursuit of the whale. When his shipmates perceived him struggling with the waves, they redoubled their exertions. They reached him just as his strength was exhausted, and had the happiness of rescuing this adventurous harpooner from his perilous situation. Captain Lyons, of the Wraith of Leith, while prosecuting the whale-fishery on the Labrador coast in the season of 1802, discovered a large whale at a short distance from the ship. Four boats were dispatched in pursuit, and two of them succeeded in approaching it so closely together that two harpoons were struck in the same moment. The fish descended a few fathoms in the direction of another of the boats, which was on the advance, rose accidentally beneath it, "'struck it with its head and threw the boat, men, and apparatus about fifteen feet into the air. "'It was inverted by the stroke and fell into the water with its keel upwards. "'All the people were picked up alive by the fourth boat, which was just at hand, "'excepting one man, who having got entangled in the boat, fell beneath it and was unfortunately drowned. "'The fish was soon afterwards killed. "'In 1822,' Two boats belonging to the ship Baffin went in pursuit of a whale. John Carr was harpooner and commander of one of them. The whale they pursued led them into a vast shoal of his own species. They were so numerous that their blowing was incessant, and they believed that they did not see fewer than a hundred. Fearful of alarming them without striking any, they remained for a while motionless. At last one rose near Carr's boat, and he approached, and fatally for himself harpooned it. When he struck, the fish was approaching the boat, and passing very rapidly, jerked the line out of its place over the stern, and threw it upon the gunwale. Its pressure in this unfavourable position so careened the boat that the side was pulled under water, and it began to fill. In this emergency, Carr, who was a brave active man, seized the line and endeavoured to relieve the boat by restoring it to its place but by some circumstance which was never accounted for a turn of the line flew over his arm dragged him overboard in an instant and drew him under the water never more to rise so sudden was the accident that only one man who was watching him saw what had happened so that when the boat righted which it immediately did though half full of water the whole crew on looking round "'inquired what had become of Carr. "'It is impossible to imagine a death "'more awfully sudden and unexpected. "'The invisible bullet could not have effected "'more instantaneous destruction. "'The velocity of the whale at its first descent "'is from thirteen to fifteen feet per second. "'Now, as this unfortunate man "'was adjusting the line at the water's very edge, "'where it must have been perfectly tight, "'owing to its obstruction in running out of the boat.' The interval between the fastening of the line about him and his disappearance could not have exceeded the third part of a second of time, for in one second only he must have been dragged ten or twelve feet deep. Indeed, he had not time for the least exclamation, and the person who saw his removal observed that it was so exceeding quick that though his eye was upon him at the moment, he could scarcely distinguish his figure as he disappeared as soon as the crew recovered from their consternation they applied themselves to the needful attention which the lines required a second harpoon was struck from the accompanying boat on the raising of the whale to the surface and some lances were applied but this melancholy occurrence had cast such a damp on all present that they became timid and inactive in their subsequent duties the whale when nearly exhausted was allowed to remain some minutes unmolested till having recovered some degree of energy it made a violent effort and tore itself away from both harpoons the exertions of the crews thus proved fruitless and were attended with serious loss innumerable instances might be adduced of the perils and disasters to which our whalemen are subject of their never-tiring fortitude and daring enterprise but we believe the examples we have given alone will sufficiently convey a full and correct idea of the customs and dangers of the whale fishery. Some notes on the narwhal. The narwhal, or sea unicorn, is a species of the whale, and seldom exceeds twenty-two feet long. Its body is slenderer than that of the whale, and its fat not so great abundance. But this great animal is sufficiently distinguished from all others of the deep by its tooth or teeth which stand pointing directly from their upper jaw, and are from nine to ten feet long. In all the variety of weapons with which nature has armed her various tribes, there is not one so large or so formidable as this. This terrible weapon is generally found single, and some are of opinion that the animal is furnished with but one by nature. But there is at present the skull of a narwhal at the House at Amsterdam, with two teeth. The tooth, or as some are pleased to call it, the horn of the narwhal, is as straight as an arrow, about the thickness of the small of a man's leg, wreathed as we sometimes see twisted bars of iron. It tapers to a sharp point, and is whiter, heavier, and harder than ivory. It is generally seen to spring from the left side of the head, directly forward in a straight line with the body, and its root enters into the socket above a foot and a half notwithstanding its appointments for combat this long and pointed tusk amazing strength and matchless celerity the narwhal is one of the most harmless and peaceful inhabitants of the ocean it is seen constantly and inoffensively sporting among the other great monsters of the deep no way attempting to injure them but pleased in their company the greenlanders call the narwhal the forerunner of the whale for whenever it is seen the whale is shortly after sure to follow This may arise as well from the natural passion for society in these animals, as from both living upon the same food. These powerful fishes make war upon no other living creature, and though furnished with instruments to spread general destruction, are as innocent and as peaceful as a drove of oxen. The narwhal is much swifter than the whale, and would never be taken by the fishermen but for those very tusks, which at first appear to be its principal defence. These animals are always seen in herds of several at a time, and whenever they are attacked they crowd together in such a manner that they are mutually embarrassed by their tusks. By these they are often locked together, and are prevented from sinking to the bottom. It seldom happens, therefore, but the fishermen make sure of one or two of the hindmost, which very well reward their trouble. End of chapter four.